may be seated. Well, good singing indeed this evening. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 126. We had a lot of firsts in the service, the second service this morning. How many were in early service? Raise your hand. Oh, man, you missed a doozy. <clears throat> I think the preaching was generally the same. I don't know that it was one was better than the other, but uh, we had all kinds of fun in the second service. We had uh, a device that was speaking in tongues. We'll just say that for posterity's sake. Uh, Scott was actually trying to help Melanie, of all people, who said, Dad, I can't hear it. Turn it up. We're at home. We can't hear it. And so Scott was trying to turn it up and listening on his phone, but the Bluetooth headphones weren't connected, and his phone kept getting louder because he's like, I can't hear it in my headphones. She's right. It kept getting louder, and I was preaching, and I was preaching at myself in the back while I was preaching, and everybody in this section back here was going, what is going on in this church? And I kept looking back, and honestly, my first thought, and please, for the prime timers, you can get mad at me if you want. My first thought was that somebody's hearing aid was too loud, and sometimes it'll get recirculated, right? And it'll be, and I thought, well, somebody's going to figure it out eventually, and Scott did. And just to make him feel better, apparently when I was praying, where Edward and Dana sit, Edward has a tendency to kind of scoot that chair back a little bit. And so he and Dana had sat there in the first service and either moved it back or scooted it or it was too close together. And uh, the clearest sign that I preach too long is when your wife's leg falls asleep. And Jessica was sitting cross-legged and her leg was asleep. And when she got up, her foot hooked the little, she's going to kill me, she's back here teaching, but it hooked the little bar where Edward's seat would come down. And she went to catch herself with her sleepy leg, and she went, oh, 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 and went straight down. Poor Jeff Atkins was sitting back there trying to catch her. And my dad was like, Jesse, are you okay? You're Kyle's only hope. Came running up. He didn't do that. So it was a fun one in that second service. In between, in between, I guess the preaching wasn't bad either, but uh, that's where we are in life. Well, take your Bibles, as I said, and turn to Psalm 126. I turn to, I, to 2 Kings 19. We'll get there in just a minute, but I didn't go to 126 in all my talking. The Bible says in Psalm 126, we're beginning a new triad this evening. And we're dealing with the issue of trouble. Next Sunday night, I will preach in Psalm 127, and that is the trust. And Edward will be covering Psalm 128, which is the triumph and the great blessing from this. Let's read the psalm together. We'll pray, and then we'll jump into the preaching tonight. The Bible says, When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter, and our tongue was singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seeds, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Father, help us tonight as we consider this psalm. Certainly, Lord, as we read it, it doesn't sound like trouble. 
But we'll find this evening that they are responding to the trouble that had, been bes- had beset them. We too find ourselves in many of the same situations that Hezekiah and the Judah, Judeans, excuse me, and those of Jerusalem found themselves in. I pray that you'll help us, Lord, to apply what we learned tonight to the everyday captivity that besets our soul in this sinful world. Bless us, I pray, in this hour in Jesus' name. Amen. The trouble that is articulated here is not so obvious on the surface. When you read Psalm 126, you initially come away with it saying, He that beareth precious seed, that's what I want to do. I want to bear that seed and I want to bring my sheaves afterwards. That is an encouraging psalm. And the answer is, yes, it is meant to encourage, but it is meant to highlight the real trouble that was at the heart of the king who compiled these. It seems the trouble here is one of want that came because of captivity. A sense of loss is palpable in this psalm. He wants God to turn again, and then again in verse 4, to turn again. It tells us that the captivity that was holding the city of Jerusalem, or that had held the city of Jerusalem, was one that was very difficult for them to endure. We have dealt with the lying tongue. We have dealt with, or the destructive tongue, I should say, in the first triad. We have dealt with the contemptible soul in the second. But now we are dealing with what happens when the catastrophes are over. When trouble comes... It leaves us with loss. That's what this psalm is telling us. There is a restoration that needs to take place. There is a rebuilding that must come. The trouble facing these people was that what to do with the decimation and the destruction that had come with the captivity that had been set upon them. It is what we feel when we sin or when our life circumstances overtake us. We feel a sense of loss. It is troubling to think of what our sins have cost us. And that's what the psalmist is addressing here. This is why the psalm was written. How do we handle the trouble of guilt? I was once asked years ago a question and answer. We used to do these as preaching opportunities. And by the way, we've started them back up. I hope you've noticed it in the seeds. Edward sent out the newsletter. If you've got a great question, send it in. We've already worked on one. and We're open for more. But one of the hardest questions that I ever received was sent to me, back then it was by 3 by 5 card, and it said, Pastor, when will the scars of life ever go away? The mistakes that I've made, or the mistakes that were made, when will they ever dissipate? When will they ever go away? And the answer is, I don't know. But I do know the steps of how to move beyond captivity. I do know how to move beyond that time and season of loss, to move back into victory. Oh, victory and restoration had come to Hezekiah by the writing and the recording of this psalm. And it had come at God's hand. But the nagging thought here in the mind of the psalmist is recorded for us in verse number four. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. The streams in the south would have been down in the pasture land where the water would flow from the mountain ranges. It would come down and make its way to Jordan, the well-watered plain that was there. 
It had been too decimated by all the captivities, all of the armies marching, all of the cattle, excuse me, the cattle, the horses and the horsemen grazing and feeding, all of the battlements set in array. Everything around the city was not like it used to be, and everything was wrong, the psalmist is implying. The word phrase, turn again, the captivity, means to construct us once again, to restore us to our original possession. Often in our walk with God, there will be times of regression, there will be times of failure, and they will bring us real spiritual loss. It creates within us a captivity to our old master sin. It's what Paul writes about when he writes Romans 6 and Romans 7. We're going through this on Wednesday evening. Sin is a terrible taskmaster. It brings us nothing but death, separation from God. This is what the psalmist is readying us for here. That when we find ourselves in captivity, there is a mind's thought of the reflection in time that was before. Turning captivity, though, is what God does so well. That's why the psalmist in his trouble is crying out. God does it so well because we are so bent on falling into captivity so often. Thus, we often need this psalm, speaking of trouble, dealing with genuine loss, needing to be restored. There is some human truth in the fact that some losses come because of oppression. But in truth, most of our problems in our Christian walk are self-inflicted. Yet I believe the psalm can help us because captivity, after all, is just captivity. It is the idea of losing that which we had gained, losing that which we have. The psalmist is focused here in this psalm on his trouble that is from without. But God is the solution to that problem. I believe we find two losses that I'd like us to highlight tonight in these six verses in this Psalm 126. Two losses along with what God restores when we do turn to Him. When we turn to Him, He turns all of Himself to us, and He can make up the loss. But we're going to note the first loss tonight in our outlines is the loss of blessing. There is a loss of blessing. When we are taken into captivity, it is obvious that we have lost God's blessing upon us, His presence with us. We find a king here who is relieved of a great burden in verses 1 through 3. He says it is like a dream come true. In this instance, the writer is talking of God's deliverance, which to him seemed like a dream. You ever been through a difficult time? You ever caused yourself great pain and maybe personal loss into the captivity of a sinful decision or a sinful choice or some kind of separation from God, and you would say, man, this just feels like a nightmare. That's what he's saying. When he turned our captivity, it just seemed like a dream to all of us. The only other example that we have of this concept in the Bible is when Peter was put into prison and he's let out by the angel and ultimately ends up outside the fence and he's knocking on the door. And when he comes in and they ask him how he got out, it felt like a dream, Peter says. Because being in prison is not a great idea. It's being in captivity. It has a linkage, a connection to this very psalm. 
the nightmare of what had been at their doorstep for Hezekiah and Isaiah and the rest of the residents of Jerusalem had clouded everyone's hopes of ever being successful again. Do you ever find yourself in that situation when you have failed? Yeah, I'm never going to dig out of this hole, God. I'm never going to get over this problem. And God says, hey, look, just turn to me and let me turn to you in your time of trouble and we can get through this together. Our flesh and the devil do not want us to believe that is so, but it is. They were a people who were supposed to be free. They were a people who were to live in their land fully blessed by God, yet they had been holed up in little old Jerusalem, barely hanging on to their sanity with the enemy outside mocking them openly, waiting to be conquered, waiting to be crushed in despair and in despondency. By the way, the word depression never appears in the Word of God, but certainly a lot of elements of depression appear in the Word of God. Despair, despondency, dismayed. They all have the same first letter. It's almost like I wrote it. We find ourselves in these places often. And so we can very quickly come to this psalm and say, yes, I need God to turn my captivity. Too many a Christian lives in this reality, supposed to be joyful, supposed to be content, expected to be glad, yet our lives are a hazy dream of possibilities and nothing but problems. But in captivity to their old sinful selves, they become slaves once again. When Hezekiah turned to God, God began to help. That is how we overcome the loss of blessing in our spiritual lives. We note the three steps to be restored to blessing when we find ourselves in a loss of blessing. First, the jerks have to be removed. You didn't expect that one as the first one, did you? The jerk removed. Man, isn't that great? I am not going to teach you a prosperity gospel. You can walk around talking about the devil that way. The jerk here is Rabshakeh, exactly, particularly. The greater jerk than him is Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And God takes care of him. May I suggest to you, whatever it is that's suppressing you, whatever it is that's holding you down, whatever it is that's weighing upon you, that captivity can be released if you will just take that jerk. Now, ladies, do not go home and say, all right, pastor said jerk, I'm supposed to, no, that's not what I'm talking about. If you came this morning and heard the preaching on Ruth and Boaz, you will know it is a glorious thing when Ruth finds her provider and Boaz finds his princess. However, there are seasons where it doesn't feel like that. Here we find the captivity is one of severity. By the way, I don't say the word jerk lightly. I mean it very biblically. You say, right, now I can use that word. It's a biblical term. Well, both Sennacherib and Rabshakeh were jerks by the dictionary definition. A jerk is defined as one who is contemptibly obnoxious as a person. And that's what these guys were. Sennacherib far away in Assyria, but they're close enough. Uh, I, I guess he wasn't far away in Assyria if you read the passages in 2 Kings 18 through 2 Kings 20. But he is at least not on the front lines. He's not at the gate like Rabshakeh, the mouthpiece, is. In fact, take your Bibles and turn over to 2 Kings chapter number 19. 
We're going to come back to Psalm 126 eventually. We're going to read all of 2 Kings 19, and here's why we're going to read it, because we're going to understand what it means to have the problem removed from our life. Just how powerful is God? We're going to find at the end of this passage, God is quite powerful. The Bible tells us, beginning in verse 1, and it came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it. All right, what did he hear? Well, he heard the deceitful and destructive tongue that we looked at in the first triad in, in chapter number 18. That he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. By the way, that's a good turning. He turns to God, and God now can turn to help him in the captivity. And he sent Eliakim, which was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz. And they said unto him, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble, and of rebuke, and blasphemy. By the way, please take note, not just for tonight and the last point, but of what is coming next week in Psalm 127, when he says, and this is, these are the words of the king, for the children are come to birth. In other words, the women are trying to have children, and they can't even have them. There's not strength to bring forth. It may be the Lord thy God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, hath sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord thy God hath heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that are left. So the servants of the king Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall ye say to your master, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon them. Him, excuse me. And he shall hear a rumor, and shall return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Now he's talking about King Sennacherib particularly. So Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he was departed from Lachish. And when, and when he heard say of Tirhaka, king of Ethiopia, behold, he has come out to fight against thee, he sent messengers again unto Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall ye speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God, in whom thou trustest, deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by destroying them utterly, and shalt, be, and shalt thou be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them which thy fathers have destroyed, as Gozan and Haran and Rezepah? Uh, and the children of Eden, which were in uh, Thelassar, I guess, I guess some of these Bible words are hard, aren't they? Where is the king of Hamath, and the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of Sepharvaim, and of Hena, and Ivah? And Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers and read it. Uh-oh. Man, this is getting worse for me. My captivity is going to be ruinous at this point. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. When people hold you in contempt, as we looked at over the last three sermons, you just have to give it over to God. And this is what he does. But the captivity, the oppression, <clears throat> has not been dealt with yet. They're still oppressing. They're still captive. They're still outside the walls. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone. You are the only God, is what he's saying. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down thine ear and hear. Open, Lord, thine eyes and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which hath sent him to reproach you, the living God. 
he says. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations and their hands. What is he doing to relieve himself of captivity so far? He's being honest. Listen, if it's your own sinfulness that's holding you in in captivity or suppressing your ability to have God's blessing in your life, just be honest about it. He's being honest before God. Hey, they're not lying. They have pretty much run over everyone. Cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, said, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, That which thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord hath spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion... Hath despised thee. Now, this is God's message directly back to Sennacherib for his godless statements, his contemptuous captivity. And it says, They hath despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. Now, let me pause for a second. Has anybody in the city said, That's Sennacherib. He can't do anything to us. He can't. Has anybody inside the city seemingly done that so far? When God gives you his word and it doesn't seem to make sense to act in that way, sometimes the best thing to do is just to act in that way. It is an amazing thing to say to somebody that's hiding in a city with the enemy captive, uh, capturing them, setting them or besetting them on all sides, to say to them, hey, you know what? Go out and laugh at them. I mean, crazy people do that. But Christians do that as well against our enemy that has laid siege to us. He goes on and says, The daughter of Jerusalem hath shaken her head at thee. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice? Lift up thine eyes on high. He's asking a question here. Even against the Holy One of Israel. By thy messengers thou hast reproached the Lord, and hast said with the multitude of my chariots I am come to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and will cut down the tall cedar trees thereof, and the choice fir trees thereof, and I will enter into the lodgings of his borders, and into the forest of his Carmel. I have digged and drunk strange waters, and with the sole of my feet have I dried up all the rivers of besieged places. Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done it, and of ancient times that I have formed it? Now have I brought it to pass that thou shouldest be to lay waste fenced cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, their inhabitants were of small power. What God is noting is the facts about Sennacherib's worldly power, but he's about to tell him who he is in his heavenly power. And that's a good place to be in our captivity. The removal of those who oppose God. Therefore, the inhabitants were of small power, verse 26. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and as the green herb and as the grass on the housetops and as the corn blasted before it grown up. But I know thy abode, thy going out, thy coming in, and thy rage against me. By the way, make no mistake. If your opposition is of this earth, their rage is not against you. Their rage is against your God. Cause thy rage against me and thy tumult is come up into mine ears. Therefore, I will put my hook 
in thy nose, and my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back by the way by which thou by which thou camest. And this shall be a sign unto thee. Ye shall eat this year such things as grow as themselves, and in the second year that which springeth of the same. And in the third year sow ye and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruits thereof. And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, shall do this. Therefore... Thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it, or battlements, embankments against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake. Now, pause and stay here with me. This is the removal of those who oppose God. This is how he will take care of the captivity and loss that you know and experience. Now let's notice how powerful he is in his own doing. Verse 35, and it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians and hundred fourscore and five thousand. So you understand the King James, that's 185,000 soldiers. In one night, drop dead. I don't know how big their army was. But I can promise you the next morning when Rabshakeh woke up and looked around and reported to Sennacherib, I don't know who did it, but 185,000 are dead. 185,000 are dead? 185,000 are dead. Who killed 185,000? I don't know who killed 185,000. Now the enemy's turning on itself. When God fights for you, you don't have to do any fighting for yourself. That's what the phrase, turn our captivity, or God turned our captivity, this is what he's talking about. God will deal with those who are oppressing us. Mouthy Rabshakeh is gone. The contemptible Sennacherib has been removed. In fact, if you keep reading, it says, And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. I guess they didn't arise. Verse 36, So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass, as he was worshiping in, his, in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, smote him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Armenia. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. He literally died. That's what you get when you defile, defy excuse me, the living God. 185 soldiers killed in a night without Israel lifting a finger. God will deal with the wicked. He doesn't always do it on our timeline. I have no doubt that if we go back to 2 Kings 16, when the, minute, the life and the service of King Hezekiah began, he would have liked to know that God could have struck down 185,000 soldiers that might have been marching towards his city. But God chose his time and in his way to take care of their problem. Understand, if you are experiencing the loss of blessing, 
The restoration and removal begins with those who are opposing you. And sometimes you might be the ones opposing yourselves. Being removed from that picture. The second thing that we find in the restoration of blessing from loss is their joy is restored. How long the captivity went. How long they were suffering the oppression and the loss. How long they were in despair and dismay. But joy can be restored. Back in our passage in Psalm 126, the Bible tells us, Then, then when? When our captivity was turned. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. At the end of verse 3, they testify, We are glad. The phrase turn again, the captivity, has to do with a return to a former state of contentment and joy. It was an idiomatic expression used to emphasize a return to a former condition of health and well-being. Such was Hezekiah's deliverance from the Assyrians. The resulting restoration brought literally euphoric joy in the city. It brought it to the hearts the minds, and yes, even the mouths of the people of God. They were singing. Can I suggest to you one of the easiest ways for friends who are spiritual to tell that you are in captivity is your lack of attendance in church and your lack of ability to sing in church. If all is right between your soul and the Savior, you can sing. You say, you've not heard me sing. I don't care. I like hearing you sing. Well, I don't know. We don't pick the hymns I know anymore. Sing. Sing them off key if you have to. It doesn't matter. Just sing. Learn them as quickly as you can and belt them out the best you can. Because singing is one of the marks that there is joy in your heart for Jesus. The trouble here is that during their captivity, there was nothing to be joyful about. Everything was going wrong. How will you know when God's blessings return? When you are joyful, content, and glad once again. The loss of blessing was remedied with the removal of the jerks. Once the captors were gone, or the, or the, the, the uh, enemy was gone, then joy could be restored, which leads us, letter C, to the fact of the judge being recognized. Who did this? The just one the judge of the whole earth. It is interesting as well that at the end of verse number 2 and the beginning of verse number 3, there are two groups that give testimony to God doing the work and God restoring them, removing their captive state. The Bible says at the end of verse number 2, Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. Who do you think this is? Who do you think it is that's saying this? It's Sunday night. You're allowed to answer. I know I'm talking loud tonight. Who? The Assyrians. I mean, they had just come up and blasphemed God, and 185,000 were killed by God without the Israelites having to do anything, the Jews inside of Jerusalem. I have no doubt that... Guy number 185,001 that was like, ah. (laughs) When he got back to Nineveh, 
that he probably said, let me tell you something. I don't know about these other gods that we whipped pretty easily, but that God's nothing to mess with. I mean, look what he did to us. One minute Joe was there, and the next minute Joe was dead, and I don't know who killed Joe. And it happened to everybody else. I mean, it's the saddest day of our military. We've been defeated, and we don't even know who did it. But I think it was their God. By the way, when God turns your captivity, he should get the recognition for it. You know, the biggest problem a lot of times that happens to us, especially in our own sinful captivity, when we get our hearts right, we're like, you know, I just got over that and, and I really put myself to it and, and I decided that I was going to overcome that problem. Can I suggest to you, you're going to go right back into captivity to that problem. It's a proper recognition of the judge of the whole earth, God himself, the Lord. The outside world can see when God steps in to provide for to protect and to preserve his people. Our church has experienced this, by the way. Not long ago, I had a meeting here on a Saturday with some of our neighbors out at the church property. We are to love our neighbors. And they will be our neighbors, and so we will. But, buddy, they made it hard. I had a couple of the deacons... Say, I don't know, Pastor, if you should do that. I don't think they're going to be very happy with us building a building out there someday. And they were right (laughs) about them not being happy. But at least I could look at them and say, we do love you, and God is growing us. Literally, one of the comments that was made was this. Well, I was told that one of the planning commissioners had said that they had destroyed your church because they won't let you build out there and wouldn't let you sell this property. And I thought, well, I don't know who told you that. But that's not true, right? We seem to be doing okay here. And if and when we go out there and build a bigger hammer, that's what a building is, it's just a tool, we build a bigger hammer or a better saw, that tool will also provide for us to do okay out there just like we've done okay here because God is on our side. I just thought that was funny. I also remember... The times in which we went down here in Georgetown to City Hall to speak against the wanton, perverse, homosexual agenda that is called the Fairness Ordinance that was passed here in Georgetown back in 2017. It blew my mind that there were churches that literally had the Baptist name attached to them that were standing up and saying, it's a good thing to support homosexuality. That is absurd to me. It's a sexual perversion. It's a sin. I will make this blunt statement. It's the most debased of the sexual sins, but it really is no different than any other sexual sin. It's still sin. And yet there's pastors that were standing up. And man, I remember walking out of that place after I had kind of taken a speech in to give, which was like something about the Constitution and our rights and our freedoms. And then I hear a pastor trying to quote a Bible verse and ripping it out of context. And I thought, well, God called me to be one thing, and that's a pastor. So I'm going to stand up in the public forum for my five, my five minutes and tell everybody, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't know where he got his degree or his pastor certificate, but it may have been from Clown College. I didn't say it like that. That's what I wanted to say. Because the Bible speaks very clearly on these matters. I mean, very clearly on these matters. And so there's been times where we have to stand up against opposition having done nothing inherently wrong. 
But you know what happens every time we've done that? We grow. It's an amazing thing that every time the devil cranks up the heat against his church, a true church, that church will feel oppressed, but they will actually grow. That's why, by the way, the Chinese church, they call it the underground church, but I call it the Chinese church. The churches in China are actually much healthier spiritually than most American churches because they don't get a free pass. Sometimes captivity is good for us. Sometimes the trouble is good for us so that it drives us back to recognizing who it is that delivers us, the judge himself, God. He will judge the hearts of men. He will judge our actions and our activities. He will judge our character and our conduct. We don't need to worry about it. This is what Hezekiah is noting here. The heathen recognize it. All the heathen can do is, man, we have tried to stamp them out like a bug and we can't kill them. Good, because you can't kill our God. It's ultimately the way in which we should look at it. God seemingly wants us to endure hardness so that He might endow in us His holiness in a greater way. By the way, our response must be the same as the residents of Jerusalem. Everybody outside said, well, I know those jokers didn't do it. It must have been their God. But everybody inside of Jerusalem noted the same thing. The Lord hath done great things for us. You know, when God goes out and takes care of 185,000 soldiers like that, it's pretty hard for any general, general to stand up and say, that was my idea. This was my wonderful battle strategy. Well, you didn't do it. And if you didn't do it, you can only claim that God is your liberator. What a truth that is. When God restores joy, when He obviously works in power on your behalf, never forget to glorify and praise Him for His goodness, for His kindness, and His grace. So the psalmist then notes that the trouble was found in the loss of God's initial blessing. Sennacherib was only allowed to conquer Israel, their neighbors to the north and fellow kinsmen, because of Israel's sinfulness. He marched on Judah and Jerusalem because of their faltering waywardness. But Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, was a godly king who resorted to God's prophet and to God's program so God would purposefully bless them. Which brings us to the second problem that we can infer from this psalm, and that is this, the loss of bounty. When God's blessing departs, so too does the bountifulness of His presence. The joy of His eye as it gleams upon us. There aren't a lot of rich people who are in captivity. I mean, nobody after World War I in Germany was walking around loaded. They lost. That's what captivity does to us. It robs us of our resources, of our bounty. The rest of this psalm on trouble, and though it is a very encouraging psalm, it is still at its heart about the trouble that was, they were facing or that they had overcome. It is a loss of the resources that God had entrusted to them. What flows from God and His presence is plenteous. That's why being in the land of promise for Israel was so important. It was a land that flowed with what? Milk and honey. I've never thoroughly enjoyed eating milk and honey together, but I know that divinely those are wonderful attributes of things to have. I like milk, but I like milk and cookies. That's what God would have given to me. 
The loss of bounty begins in its restoration with a pleading for that restoration. Letter A. That's what verse 4 is all about. That's why I put it at the head of your notes. It seems to be the hinge of this whole psalm. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They were nourishing streams, life-giving streams. The desire at the end of verse 4 is for the streams to nourish and flow again in the southlands, where the pastures would be, where the sheep would be kept. These are pasture lands that were fertile and useful. The prayer is much deeper, however, than a prayer for physical prosperity, though there is an element to that. The prayer here from Hezekiah is for spiritual revival. Captivity was bondage and loss of both their physical and spiritual identity. When Rabshakeh was outside speaking in the Hebrew tongue and the people on the wall were listening, they were beginning to doubt, is our God really good? They had lost their spiritual identity and it took the fortitude of Isaiah and his message in preaching and the strength of Hezekiah to lead that actually brought God's blessing upon the people. But I have no doubt there were some on the wall that were like, you know what, they say they're going to let us go. If you read the story, that's the lie they tell them. Hey, come on out. We'll let you just open the gate. Jimmy, come on, just open the gate. No. There was a need to be restored that could only come through revival. Revival is needed for God, or needed for God so to open the floodgates of heaven and pour out the torrential rains that can descend upon His people, and so that we, His people, can be caught up in the flood of a tremendous spiritual tidal wave. This is the idea of an abundantly flowing stream after a hard rain. God desired for it to be a beautiful revival for them. Such a revival, by the way, for Israel never really came. Hezekiah, after this, is given 15 years, and the 15 years he essentially wastes. He's not a bad king. In fact, the Bible says he's one of the best kings of Israel. But he doesn't make good use of it. He makes a league with Babylon, receives a gift from them when they heard he was sick, brings them in and says to Babylon, hey, man, check out what we got here. It's awesome in Jerusalem, isn't it? Pride goeth before a fall. In this, my thoughts are immediately drawn to our own land, are they not? We as a country are very proud of our Christian heritage. And we are anything but Christian in our heritage anymore. That doesn't mean we ought not desire to restore it. And it ought to be our goal and aim. But truthfully, as Christians, we should first be children of God and in His kingdom. Our land is in desperate need for revival. Yet I wonder how many of us American believers are earnestly pleading for restoration. Instead of pleading for restoration, we often find ourselves just complaining about the decline. Complaining about it doesn't change it. Praying for it will. John Phillips said the prayer for our country should be this. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. A spiritual awakening that will revive the church, reach our rebellious, wayward children, convert thousands of unsaved to Christ, and thoroughly cleanse our land of its pollutions and sins. That would be a good way to read verse number 4 as an American. When we plead for true restoration, God will return 
His presence into our lives. He will bring the bounty of His person. This leads us to our own, letter B, personal reflection. Verse number five, they that sow in tears shall what? Reap in joy. And we always, and I'm going to be careful of these next two verses, we always use these verses as the template for soul winning or reaching people for Jesus. And I'm not saying that they can't be appropriately used or applied in that way. You can use them that way, but that's not the contextual use of them. What he's saying here in verse number five is you've got to have some personal reflection. You've got to do some weeping before you do some rejoicing if you've been taken in captivity. The equation is simple. Weeping, sorrow leads to wondrous joy. True lament over the cause of our captivity is what will keep us away from any such waywardness ever again. As I noted, Hezekiah escapes from the Assyrian captivity by God's mighty hand, but he opens the door to Babylonian captivity, and it comes in the next generation. In the extended 15 years of his life that God gives to him, he brings in the visitors from Babylon who ultimately go home tell, uh, and tell their building empire about the wealth and wonder of this city, Jerusalem. In less than two generations, they are conquered by Nebuchadnezzar himself. The tears, however are what help us keep away the sins. If you don't take sin seriously, you will always live in a life of captivity. That's the takeaway from this verse. It is personal reflection. Not what is wrong with my fellow believers, Lord, but what is wrong with me. That old song that repeats itself so many times. It's me, it's me, It's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It is my responsibility to come and reflect on my life before a holy God. That alone will free us from the captivity. It's personal reflection. And finally this evening, there is a path to rejoicing. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing that precious seed. I don't know, do weeds have seeds Technically, anybody, any gardeners in here? Do weeds have seeds in them? Wes is always my go-to in the office. Lots of seeds, he says. Too many of them. All right? I know I tell my boys not to pick up the dandelions in the spring and blow on them because it basically just puts them all over our yard. It is amazing to me when our concrete pad out back of our house, and many of you have been to our house and you know that concrete pad. When the guy came and poured that concrete pad right after John had finished building the house, There was not a single weed that was anywhere coming up through that concrete. But do you know what one little seed will do? In between the brick and the concrete, there is apparently some sort of moisture. And in that teeniest, tiniest little part, that seed will break its way through. That weed will grow. And you know what it will actually do? It will start growing into and through the concrete itself. The power of one little Seed. What he says here, he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing that precious seed. And of course, this is where the application to witnessing in the word of God is so important. 
But the truth of the matter here is, if this applies to the captivity of sins that beset us, that settle upon us, that are troublesome to us, that seem as strong as the Assyrian Empire did to Hezekiah, it is just one little seed of the Word of God that can overcome and spring up and solve any problem in that captivity. He that goeth forth and weepeth with sincerity, with earnestness, with desire, bearing that precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. By the way, that's what we read in this psalm. It is a postlude to the actual invasion and the captivity and the besiegement. It's done. God's worked. Hallelujah. But he notes in this triad where the trouble came from. The trouble came from captivity and loss. The principle in this verse, in verse number 6, is put in your work and God will put in His work. There is most assuredly an application to sharing our faith, but within the context, I believe the sowing here is for the next generation. We're actually going to see that in 127. He's going to talk about children. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Remember God's pronouncement back in 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 30? He says, The remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. It'll be obvious. Well, it may not be Hezekiah's generation, but it'll be some generation. And it tells them that it is important for them to stay away from the captivity in every generation. That's why the trust generationally is going to be dealt with in 127. God promised Hezekiah there would be an heritage. Hezekiah's lament back in verse number 3 was, women aren't able to give birth to children in the calamity of this captivity. We can't even, they don't even have the strength to bear the children. And so in the trusting part is, God's going to give you kids. Now, that's not me promising you that tonight. Primetimers are glad. We've already had ours. <laughs> but the promise is the kids that God gives to you, you, gives to you, you need to teach them why the captivity came and how to keep that captivity away. They are your success. In closing, I hope that none of us ever finds ourselves in a captive state. But in truth, I'm sure we've all found ourselves captive to our own sinfulness, captive to outside oppression in some way. If you do find yourself in that condition, and come to this psalm and think this, what will restore the loss of blessing and the loss of God's bountiful presence in my life? What is it that's keeping those two things from being very real in my life? And you will be well on your way to solving your own problems according to the Word of God. Father, help us.